Good morning, everybody. I was thinking about, if you've never seen the, the documentaries that were written by Ken Burns and filmed by Ken Burns on uh, World War II, it, they're incredible. And I watched those and while watching them had no idea what these men suffered through, particularly during the Italian campaign when they invaded Italy. And it was written about and captured. There was a, a writer for the Stars and Stripes named Bill Malden. And he captured, for those of us who've never entered into a military campaign or known the misery of it, he captured uh, that in a very short uh, couple of paragraphs I wanted to share with you. He said, do this. For those of us who've never fought in a war, he said, dig a hole in your backyard while it's raining. Sit in the hole while the water climbs up around your ankles. Pour cold mud down your shirt collar. Sit there for 48 hours. So there is no danger of your dozing off. Imagine that a guy is sneaking around waiting for a chance to club you on the head or set your house on fire. Get out of the hole. Fill a suitcase full of rocks. Pick it up. Put a shotgun in your hand and walk on the muddiest road you can find. Fall flat on your face every few minutes as you imagine big meteors streaking down beside you. If you repeat this performance every three days for several months, you may begin to understand why an infantryman gets out of breath. But you still won't understand how he feels when things get tough. I've often wondered... Uh, would I be willing to make these kinds of sacrifices, not only for our country, which I love, but also for the cause of Christ? I believe that if I were, as a matter of fact, I think this of most of us. You know, I'm 48 years old. I, I'm probably not going to be recruited at this point. But even if I was, it's my hope that I would answer the call that I would go on the battlefield if necessary. But then I have to remember, I'm also part of a kingdom, and my king has made this request. He's, this is what it says in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What I want to talk about this morning is how can I be a living sacrifice, and not just a living sacrifice, but a sacrifice willing to stay on that altar of sacrifice once I have put my faith in Jesus Christ. As Sam will often say, living sacrifices have a tendency to try to crawl off the altar and have to crawl back on. The passage I want to look at this morning comes from John 19, verses 17 through 24. We'll start with verse 17 of John 19. Read down through verse 24. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word, starting at John 19, 17. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and him with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, 
For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. You may be seated. We continue to walk through the Gospel of John. As a matter of fact, this will be our our last Sunday uh, in the Gospel of John this year. We'll pick it up and finish it uh, next year because we are right on the edge of the holidays. And next week we'll be hearing from Tim Hall, one of our missionaries. And we'll continue this morning, though, with the crucifixion scene. We just read it. And we're coming up quickly to the purpose of the book itself. As we do every week, please read it off the screen with me, starting with the reference. John 20, 30, and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This morning, we're going to look at this extreme, this dichotomy of humanity, one represented in the person of Jesus Christ, God himself, but then the other in these other characters, Pilate, the Jewish leaders, and the soldiers. And we'll talk this morning about, first of all, what did Jesus do? We don't ever want to miss the significance of what we just read, and John encapsulated in such a short space in the text and then for whom did Jesus die then finally how can I be a living sacrifice it's actually four ways not three four it was a misprint my bad four ways this morning I want to answer those questions so first of all what did Jesus do what did he do so having pronounced his judgment Pilate hands Jesus to the guards and and Christ begins this agonizing march to Golgotha It's called the place of the skull, and no one exactly knows why it's called the place of the skull. There are some places in Israel that have the appearance of a a face or skull uh, embedded into the cliffside, but no one really knows for sure why it's called the place of the skull. Some even thought it was the skull of Adam that had been buried in that place, which I can't buy that one, as to why it was called the place of the skull. The transliteration of Golgotha, In Latin is Calvary, from the Latin Calvaria, which also means place of a skull. And most of us envision a hill. However, that really doesn't come from the Bible. That comes from the old rugged cross. On a hill far away stood the old rugged cross. In all likelihood, Christ and these two men were crucified by the side of a road so many people could see this as they were walking by and read that inscription. And when someone was executed in this manner, uh, the standard procedure was they would cross, they would carry the cross from the place where the judgment was pronounced to the place of execution. This was one final statement for the person being executed to say, it's not about me, it's about Rome. Rome was right, 
I was wrong. So Christ was forced to carry this beam, probably just the cross piece. The uh, vertical piece was stuck in the ground at the place of execution. From time to time, they would have to carry the entire cross. In all likelihood, that may not have been the case. He may have just been carrying that cross beam. And it itself was about three inches by five inches and six, inches, and six feet long and weighed about 30 pounds. In some versions of the Gospels, uh, it records that he was helped with this by Simon of Cyrene. At this point, Jesus had already been beaten to a pulp. He was scourged. He was flogged. And in that condition, he's now carrying this crossbeam with him. Now, when John's readers saw that phrase, bearing his own cross, they made a connection to the Old Testament. And the early church connected the phrase from Genesis 22, 6, which is the story of Abraham and Isaac. So recall back this very early story. Abraham finally had his one son, Isaac, and God said, I want you to sacrifice your son to me. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his, in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went, both of them, together. The early church saw this passage in John, and this was the first thing that came to their minds. The picture of carrying another instance when the wood was carried to the place of sacrifice. This happened on Nisan 15. Nisan is a Jewish month. The 15th of Nisan is when this event happened. When Abraham and Isaac made their way up to the place where Isaac would be sacrificed. And you know as the story goes, God provided a lamb and stopped Abraham from sacrificing his own son. There was a second event that occurred. The first event being Isaac and Abraham making to the place of sacrifice. But there was a second event occurred also on Nisan 15. That was the date of the Passover itself. As you recall, the Israelites, this would have been about 600 years after the time of Abraham and Isaac. About 600 years later, about 1400, 1440 if you want to be specific. The Israelites put the blood on their doorposts to ensure that their firstborn didn't die when the angel of death came. That their house would be passed over by virtue of the blood being on the doorpost. That's why it's called the Passover. This also occurred on Nisan 15. And then we come to the text today. And guess what else happened on Nisan 15? It was the day that Christ was crucified. He and two others with him. Again, the one to be sacrificed is carrying the wood, his cross to the place of execution, the final sacrifice. And once again, God provides the lamb. This time, the lamb will take away the sin of the whole world. Now, John has taken links to ensure his readers know that all the events are transpiring in Jerusalem happen during this season of Passover. And he's showing the connection between the ancient Jewish calendar. This, he does this all through the gospel. Look, this is what we've been celebrating for millennia. This is the fulfillment of what we've been celebrating. These have all been pointers to what's going to happen with Christ now on the cross. 
He's the ultimate and final sacrifice. The blood of the lamb spared Isaac. The blood of the lambs spared the Israelites. And now the blood of the lamb spares all who believe. In verse 18, John simply states, there they they crucified him. It was a long and laborious death. One historian records it and said it was the most wretched of deaths. It was so brutal that no Roman citizen could be crucified without the sanction of the emperor. Stripped naked, beaten to pulpy weakness, the victim could hang in the hot sun for hours, even days. To breathe, it was necessary to push with the legs and pull with the arms to keep the chest cavity open and functioning. But notice something. John gives no detailed description of the crucifixion event. It's very short, and I believe that serves two purposes. First of all, the readers were already familiar with what transpired in the act of crucifixion. But then secondly, the emphasis was the purpose of the crucifixion. Yes, it was a long and laborious death. Yes, our Savior suffered more than we probably will ever even begin to imagine. However, the emphasis is on what was accomplished in the death of Jesus Christ, and it is by his blood we are saved. It's by his blood that you and I, we've already sang about the power of the blood this morning. If you pay attention, we do it virtually every single Sunday because, see, that's where the power is. There was a reason that Satan tempted Jesus with all the power of the world because he knew the power wasn't in the government structures of the world. He knew the power was in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he had to try and prevent. That was his greatest fear, as that the blood of Christ would be shed for mankind. It's the gospel that fixes the world. Jesus died for sinners. The manner was important that it fulfilled the prophecies. And beyond that, the emphasis is the purpose of his death for sinners like Chad Cowley. And reminded of Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love was shown to us through the sacrifice of Christ. He paid for our sins and he asked us to be living sacrifices for him. Notice he died for us not because we were attempting to do the right thing. He died for us while we were in that sinful state. How then do we show Devotion to such a great act. We trust him. We trust this death to be that which atones for our sins. And then we continue to show our love for him by sacrificing for him. You know, Billy Graham once said, give me five minutes with a person's checkbook and I will tell you where their heart is. Give me five minutes with their checkbook and I'll tell you where their heart is. Now, why is that? Because that's how we show our devotion. It's through sacrifice. It's what we give our life to, our time to. Do we give our time to allow social media or talk show hosts or the culture to primarily disciple us? Or do we go to the scriptures and go to God to disciple us? Or the church? Are we primarily interested in evangelizing evangelizing people to our politics or to our Savior? 
And what I sacrifice my time to, that is what's going to shape me. That is going to be what it is that I worship. So Christ demonstrated his intense love for us through his sacrifice. And it's by trusting in his sacrifice that we're we're saved. We show devotion to him by giving our time and our talents and our treasure for what he calls important. Now, do we do that perfectly? No, we're not going to do that perfectly. Does he still love us? Absolutely. And that brings us to our next question. Well, then, for whom did Jesus die? For whom did Jesus die? We read verses 19 through 22. There was an inscription that was included on the cross itself, according to verse 19. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. It was customary for the Romans to provide a public sign on a cross. Written notice of the criminal's name, their activity, and that was paraded before them. Sometimes it was hung around the neck as they were walking to the crucifixion. And John alone employs that technically correct term for his title. It was written in three languages. It was written in three languages because this uh, particular governor, Pilate, wanted everybody to know, anybody that would walk by that cross, no matter what language they spoke, they would read that and know exactly who this was. The Jewish leaders did not take well to this. Look at their response in verses 21 and 22. So the chief priests of the Jews and said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, The man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now do you see the carelessness with which these men are responding to the death of our Savior? Pilate was only interested in getting revenge. You know, he, he's saying, you Jews, you stuck me in this position. You made me make a judgment. Well, guess what? I'm going to make sure everybody knows that that man was your king. The Jewish leaders, while this man is dying in agony, they're only interested in saving their pride. Don't say that about us, please. Just put that he said that. Pilate was having none of it. You're not going to take my revenge away from me, was the thought of Pilate. And these people are going to know he was your king. One commentator said he had already conceded once to their request, but he refused to give them the satisfaction of robbing him of his revenge. Ironically, what Pilate wrote on that sign was the absolute truth. But it was written for the worst of reasons. Then in the final part of this message we read today, we see the soldiers in verses 23 and 24 gambling for the clothes of Christ. And evidently there were four soldiers. They had divided up what they could into four, um, four piles. And then it came down to this tunic. It didn't have any seams. If they had ripped it, it would have destroyed it. It would have been of no good. This was a fulfillment of what was written in Psalm 22:18, And he stated there in verse 24, so they said to one another, let us not... Tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did this thing. It's so hard to conceive of that while God himself is dying above them, they have a wretched self-focus, a complete apathy, to what is happening up on that cross. It's hard to imagine. They didn't even care that Jesus was agonizing for them and their sin on that cross. And 
when I read this and when I look at all those sinners, I never rank myself among them. But that is exactly where I belong. Just as guilty as those men gambling for his clothes, bartering over his death, either for revenge or to save face. I always think, no, I would be the faithful disciple who was there. It was mainly women that went to the cross with Jesus. We only really know of one disciple who was there present with him. But here's the deal. I believe that God would have forgiven these men had they repented. If they would have asked for forgiveness... Again, it wasn't because we started to overcome our own sins that Jesus died for us. It was while we were still sinners, but as children of God, we still struggle. Our bent is selfishness. It is apathy. Not sacrificial, but thank God he still died for the selfish and the apathetic. I want to talk specifically now then about this living sacrifice. How can I be a living sacrifice? There's four, not three. We have to adjust our view. We have to adjust our perspective. Not just of how we read these events, but how we even prosecute our life and our Christian walk today. And we have to start out by having a higher view of God. We have to have a high view and view him more highly. And this is a lifelong process. The moment you think you have achieved a high view of God, you haven't. The moment you think, no, I'm getting him right now. No, you're not. We always have to approach our Savior with a degree of humility and an understanding. God, I'm still not seeing you as you know yourself to be. But I pray that I see you more highly than I did yesterday. And his love for you, how much he loves us, is always going to fall short of what we believe it to be. Rather, we'll always fall short of what we believe it to be. Be careful how you say that. We'll never see it rightly, but we'll see it better as we meditate on him. And I, I encourage you, every morning, get a verse. Get something that you can fill your heart with that day, that you can meditate on that day, that would raise your view of God throughout the day. I was thinking again about this idea of how important it is for the Christian to meditate J.I. Packer talks about this in his book, Knowing God. He said, meditation is the activity of calling to mind, thinking over, dwelling on, and applying to oneself the various things one knows about the works and ways and purpose and promises of God. He calls it an activity of holy thought. Meditation is not the idea of sitting cross-legged on the floor, emptying your head and humming. That is not meditation. It's filling your head with thoughts about God and thinking more deeply on these things. It's looking at creation and seeing the mind of God from the most obscure of sea creatures out to something you may see on the mountain down to the microscopic to the blue whale to the dinosaurs all come from the creative mind of God. Meditate on his truth. Read read a psalm. Start out with our daily bread. Read it first thing in the morning, and when you catch yourself having sinful thoughts, go back to that passage. Meditate on it. Think about it deeply. And then secondly, view sin more seriously. 
Those two go hand in hand, by the way. If you view God more highly, you will view sin more seriously. And it was the problem of sin in the world that God himself had to come down to endure torture. I like what one uh, minister said about sin. How How do we measure the size of a fire by the number of firefighters and fire engines sent to fight against it? How do we measure the seriousness of a medical condition by the amount of risk that doctors take in prescribing dangerous antibiotics or surgical procedures? How do we measure the gravity of sin and the incomparable vastness of God's love for us? By looking at the magnitude of what God has done for us in Jesus, the Son of God, who became like a common criminal for our sake and in our place. Sin was the problem God had to come to earth and fix. Nothing else could do it. No one else could do it. God had to die and be raised again. And then thirdly, viewing apathy more closely. View it more closely. In other words, apathy is closer to you than you think. Now, what is apathy? It's a lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern. Someone said once, will you please explain to me what apathy is? And the person answered, I don't know and I don't care. That is apathy. And it is very close to us. Pay attention to how you're spending your time. I came across an article called called slobbing out, giving up, and going goblin mode. Have you ever heard of goblin mode? Good. It's bad. People are tweeting about goblin mode. It's, it's described as our most debased tendencies. Stay in your pajamas and do nothing. One person said call it a vibe shift or a logical progression into nihilism. After years of pandemic-induced disappointment, but goblin mode, they said, is here to say. To say. And one person said, why shouldn't it? We're not here to impress anybody. It's this idea of doing the absolute least you can do to just survive. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's apathy. That's missing it. You've got a very short amount of time to invest in your eternal reward. Don't squander it. Watch when you're just infinity scrolling. That goes along with this last one, number four, live intentionally. Live intentionally. And if the world seems like it's unraveling, people giving themselves to apathy, selfishness, hopelessness, the scriptures go through and talk about the hope we have in 1 Peter 3.15. We're called to shine as lights in a dark world, Philippians 2.15. Keep up self-discipline and godly behavior while we wait for the Lord's return, Philippians 3.20. There was a man I, I read about. He, he said that he'd read a person his age drink 16 glasses of water a day. He said the next morning, he said he filled up a big pitcher of water. Throughout the day, he said that pitcher on his desk reminded him of his need. And he said he'd, in those eight hours, he'd drink those 16 glasses of water. He said that... Uh, It was about 27 trips to the bathroom. But he said, I was reminded of my need to be hydrated. He said, it it takes intentionality. He had to stop from his busyness, become aware of his body's need for liquid, and take a few moments to drink a glass of water. And he said, in a similar way to drink deeply of Jesus is to build into our lives frequent moments in which we intentionally stop, become aware of his presence, And allow him to hydrate our soul.
This is called practicing the presence of Christ. Practicing the presence of Christ. Stopping for a moment. Recalling that verse you read that morning. Perhaps saying a prayer. goes on to say we can practice it anytime, anywhere, standing in a crowded elevator, driving on the highway, working at our cubicle, waiting for some medical test results, taking an exam, or lying awake at night. See, this is intentional living for Christ. This is the, the living sacrifice that out of devotion for God, this is how we respond. So putting it all together, be a living sacrifice by adjusting your view of God to live intentionally for him. Adjust your view. High view of God, serious view of sin, close view of apathy, then live intentionally. I want to close with this story about an artist. His name was, uh, you may have heard of him. His name's Renoir. It's probably Renoir, but I'm a hillbilly. Uh, he was confined to his home the last decade of his life, and he had a student, 28 years younger than him, named Henry Matisse. They were friends and frequent companions, and Matisse visited him daily. And, and Renoir, he was almost paralyzed with arthritis towards the end of his life, but he couldn't stop painting. And he talked about how hard it was for that man to clutch uh, that brush between two fingers as he continued to make the strokes. As a matter of fact, his students often heard him crying out in pain as he was painting. And one day, Matisse came and he was watching this man work in a studio with those two fingers fighting torturous pain. And he said, why do you continue to paint when you are in such agony? And he responded and said, the pain passes, but the beauty remains. And if we were to speak to Jesus on resurrection morning, he may have said the same thing. The pain of the cross passes, but the beauty remains. Beauty of new creation. All the disciples that are going to span the millennia. A kingdom established in the hearts of his people. It all remains. And you're probably going through pain right now. And you can't see the end of that pain. Can you trust that through that pain, through that sacrifice, there will be a beauty that lasts forever? And give that pain to God and pray, Lord, show me the beauty. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your sacrifice for us that we can scarcely comprehend. We thank you for your sacrifice for our sin. That simply by trusting in what you've done, we are saved for all eternity. And Lord, I pray for that person here right now who may be questioning whether or not they've given their life to you. And Lord, I ask that you would bring them to yourself right now. That they would trust you for the forgiveness of their sins. That they would, in the silence of their seat, simply pray to you, Lord, Lord Jesus, I trust you are fully God and fully man. I believe you died for me. And I'm trusting in your saving work on the cross. And I believe that you were raised from the dead. God, I pray that we would live now with that reality. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.